Hey, hey. I was thinking about, you know, how I need power-ups, what I would call power-ups. You think in a video game, especially older video games, how you'd, you'd find power-ups that are, they would either give you this added boost, like Mario would have his invincibility, all that. See, I'm relating to the generation, I'm, I'm relating to my generation by using references to movies and video games they grew up with, because that's all anybody understands anymore. Uh, but anyway, you know, you, there are power-ups, and I think the best way to understand it is in video games. It turns out the best way to understand this very real phenomena that actually exists in real life and always has, the best way to understand it is through a video game metaphor. It's through an alternate reality metaphor. Uh, but really, there are power-ups in real life, and it's why people listen to music or why movies make people feel a certain way. And uh, there are some that are kind of guy power-ups. You know, they're like, they're very macho, and there's, they just taps into something essential and ancient in you as a man. And I'm not saying women don't react this way. Here's my disclaimer. I'm not saying women don't react to the same power-ups that men do. But I've never really seen it. Very rarely have I seen it. Uh, I've seen women flip out over twists and turns in stories, but I've never actually seen a woman lose her shit and get her get an adrenaline spike from the sort of scenes that make me and, and other guys I've known feel that way. Uh, you think about a movie like A Bronx Tale, there's the scene where uh, the bikers come to the mob bar and they tell and they have a reputation as as the movie says for busting up bars and Sonny the mob boss of the neighborhood goes up to the main biker and he's like he's got to leave and the biker becomes a gentleman in that moment and he's like uh, you know we're just here to have a couple beers and Sonny says spoken like a gentleman give him a beer and uh, uh, well that's a I should actually use the real accent of Sonny, the Italian-American Bronx mob boss. He, he talks more like, Spoken like a true gentleman. Give these men a beer. So that's, that's closer to what a, a New Yorker sounds like, an Italian-American New Yorker, at least back then. At that time, that's what they sounded like. Uh, but uh, Sonny, you know, he says that, and, and uh, they give the bikers a beer, at the mob bar, and then what do the bikers do? It's almost like that story you hear all the time about the, what is it, like a scorpion and a turtle or something, the scorpion story where the scorpion's like, will you transport me across the water? Uh, and the scorpion's like, or, and the turtle's like, well, you're a scorpion, you'll sting me. And the scorpion says, I'm not going to sting you. I promise not to if you transport me across the water. And I know I'm getting this story wrong. Maybe it's not even a turtle. Disclaimer two, uh, but uh, the, the turtle is transporting the scorpion across the water, and suddenly the scorpion stings him, and he dies. And as the turtle's dying, he asks, why'd you do that? Why'd you sting me after you said you wouldn't? And the scorpion says, because I'm a scorpion. It's what they do. So this scene in A Bronx Tale is pretty much that same story. It's like they, they let the bikers come in, give them a beer. They said they'd be gentlemen. They gave them their word. But what is a biker's word worth? And so the bikers, they, they start causing a scene. They start spraying the beer everywhere, messing with the bartender. Uh, they're scorpions. They're bikers. That's what they do. But that's where the, the, you know, this is one of the most classic scenes where 
when they start, you know, busting up the bar, Sonny walks over and the main biker watches him walk over and Sonny closes the door, the front door that's been open, and he locks it. Because uh, earlier he had said, you've got to leave before they talked their way into staying. So Sonny walks over and he closes the door. And as he locks it, he turns around and he says, now you can't leave. And I, it's, it's just the best. I immediately, like my adrenaline just goes through the roof. And I actually will watch this scene late at night. And it's just to get myself kind of pumped up. I'll, I'll find a clip of it and I'll just watch this scene alone just to get myself hyped. And... Uh, but uh, it's a bad idea because then I, I end up staying up late because I have this adrenaline spike late at night. So it's not very smart of me. But uh, the biker, his face just drops and all of a sudden you hear a racket and all the mobsters come in from the back room, from the hallway with bats. And they're just, they start just beating the shit out of these bikers. You just want to hate. I mean, these, these disgusting bikers come in and bust up, uh, you know, an establishment like that. And so you're obviously rooting for the mobsters and as the mobsters are beating everybody up, they're playing the Ten Commandments of Love, the old doo-wop song. So, of course, I love it. Uh, and that was at a point in time, too, where that kind of juxtaposition wasn't an annoying cliche. Because I feel like that's something that became annoying, kind of similar to like how the 90s and 2000s, they like just really hammered home this idea of the anti-hero. And they just like, it was cool at first and they forced it down your throat. And I feel the same way about when movies would like juxtapose like, oh, I never would have expected to hear that song while a bunch of guys are getting beaten up. Oh, my God. Like, that's so original. You know, that was a big thing that, that came, especially in the 90s, where you'd hear a song in the background during a violent scene or when something fucked up was happening. And that juxtaposition created this weird sort of art dimension where you're like, oh, this is cool. This is making me feel something that I don't normally feel. So it playing this, like, doo-wop love song, The Ten Commandments of Love, a classic, while guys are just getting brutalized. And they really do get brutalized in that scene without, unnecessary gore or violence it's just like a lot it, i feel like it's one of the more realistic portrayals of a beating because the guys end up on the street and then the neighborhood kids run in and join in and start kicking the guys and all that and uh i don't know i feel like it's just it's even though it's just non-stop violence there's something very understated about it it's not over the top uh and uh, that's one of those scenes, that's a power-up. And it's not that I have some desire to get angry or beat anybody up. It's just sort of like seeing that play out just taps into something. I get it. And the delivery of that line, that classic line, now you can't leave. It's so good. It, it, Chaz Palminteri, it, he just, it's so, once again, understated. There's an, there's an understatement to it where even though it's this macho scene and even though it's going to get any man hyped up, any, you know, any guy who's into that stuff is going to just feel like a, a fucking spike. It's a drug. It's a power-up. And the same is true for, I don't know, I saw the movie The Expendables in the theater, the first one, when it came out, and I don't remember anything about the story. I just remember the main beats, which in a movie like that, that's just the action. Uh, there's just The beats in a story are the action itself. That's the point. That's why it's an action movie. But you feel emotion through that action, through, the, through everything big and violent that happens in a movie like that. That's where the feeling is. Uh, that's where the emotion is. <laughs> that's where the, the feeling is in the explosions. You know? No, but really, it's, it's, that's, what, that's the point of action movies. Action movies really give you this, this spike in adrenaline. And 
uh, the good ones are really good at, at knowing which scenes are going to bring that out. And uh, early on in the story, or fairly early on, they introduce a, this crazy grenade launcher, and I don't think you actually see it used. And I can't remember what the uh, what they call it, but there's that technique in storytelling where if you introduce an object, even just something in the background, if you somehow call attention to it, you need to bring it up later, or it's done to to bring it up at a later time. It's one of those sayings like Occam's Razor, Schrodinger's Cat. It's something similar to that, but I can't remember what it is, and it's based on an old play or, or production where that was done. It's like if you show a dagger, you know, if, if the camera, like, pans to a dagger, it's like that dagger should probably be introduced later in the story. It should probably have some purpose. So the Expendables, you know, they use this technique, and they introduced a grenade launcher. And then later in the movie, Terry Crews, I think that's his name, uh, Terry Crew. <laughs> Uh, who's a really likable celebrity, I have to say. That guy's very likable. That's the kind of person that I actually enjoy seeing on things. You know, I, I enjoy seeing, I don't care, like I don't, I know he hosts some, you know, American, America's Got Talent type show that I don't watch, but it's like, that's the kind of person that I feel like is wholesome. Uh, and, you know, maybe I'm wrong, maybe, I don't know. But I like that guy. And uh, he gets the grenade launcher late in the movie, and he starts just blowing shit up. He starts blowing the bad guys up. And it's during, you know, the peak of the movie. It's like the height of the action, the culmination, what they call the climax. In film school, they teach you that that's the climax, and you can go home on Thanksgiving break and tell your family all the insider film industry terms like climax. And whatever, whatever it's called when you introduce an object and only to call it back later. In this case, it's a grenade launcher. Let's call it Terry Crews grenade launcher. Grenade. That's what the saying is to me. You know, you got to modernize things. Who cares about that play that introduced some object and got some name like Schrodinger's cat, Occam's razor? I'm talking about Terry Crews grenade launcher here. Oh, did you notice that this film used the the Terry Crews grenade launcher technique? But he starts blowing shit up, and it's just, it's the most hyped moment of the whole movie. It's like, it builds up, and like, I think maybe the bad guys are almost going to win, and then here comes Terry Crews with his grenade launcher. And I, I was there with a childhood friend of mine, and we were enjoying it. We went together, because we grew up watching the same action movies, so this this movie was kind of like a, a fan service to us, you know, and it didn't even, it didn't try to hide the fact that it was a fan service. Uh, there's all these things these days that are like clearly fan services if you really look at them, but they try to act like they're just an original idea or that they're genuine, but they're not. It's like, uh, it's just something you see in newer movies, what you see in the new Star Wars movies, for example. Uh, but uh, in with the Expendables, it's like it's in your face fan service. It's totally honest, and that's what was good about it. Is it was cheesy. It was you know, it's like let's all let's get all these guys in a movie before we all die. Uh, let's just let's just do something fun before we all die, and while we still have you know some muscle on our bodies. I, mean, I feel like that was the whole point of the Expendables. It was just unapologetic fan service. And when Terry Crews starts blowing shit up with this grenade launcher, there was this father and two sons sitting in front of us, and they looked to be Mexican, Latino of some kind. The father was very short, very squat, uh, and he had these two little boys with him. And when 
Terry Crews starts blowing shit up with that grenade launcher, and you remember that grenade launcher. I remember that grenade launcher from an hour ago. You know, so it's not just any, it's not just a guy blowing shit up with a grenade launcher. It's a grenade launcher you already know. And this father and his sons, like, shot out of their seats. It was so beautiful, and it, it just, it, it made me love, it just made me love, you know, because I was excited about the grenade launcher, too, and my friend and I just looked at each other with, like, this look of wonderment, and we both saw this father and his sons, and, like, they all shot out of their seat with their arms straight in the air, and the whole, and I mean, it was packed because we saw, I think it was opening night. We actually saw the Expendables, I think, right when it opened. So the theater was packed, all men, a lot of fathers and sons. Uh, it was just a guy moment. It was a guy thing. And, uh, but, but everybody like, you know, just went wild when this grenade launcher, you know, I think we stood up because everybody in the place stood up when Terry Crews comes in with his grenade launcher. Everybody stood up. But like the people in my direct field of vision were this this father and his two little boys. And they just literally shot out of their seats like rockets. And the dad like had his arms up in the air like a victory pose. And he and they were cheering. They were actually verbally like they were cheering. And uh, he he like looked down at his sons and they were just so excited and, and it was it was seriously so beautiful and we were all feeling it we were you know if you had told us like the bad guys are outside and you got to defend freedom right now we all probably would have ran outside and and defended it you know we would have been um uh you know a tough little a tough little army those of us who attended the expendables that day but seeing this father and his kids just shoot up and like to know that they were feeling what we were feeling to know that that he and his sons were like feeling this they were feeling that together and he was looking at them and you know and it was you know cross cultural to some degree not that i like care about that not that i even care about that not that that's like a priority for me but it was just you know, you have to acknowledge that. And it's like, and it's Terry Crews with the grenade launcher. I mean, that was a moment. And I mean, it makes me feel like, like that reminds me of Platoon where the scene where Elias gets left behind and you think he's dead. And then you see him, he comes running out of the woods with the flares and that over the top cheesy Platoon soundtrack is playing. That's just designed to pull at your heartstrings, but in this kind of like macho, you know, uh, just like, it's the sort of soundtrack, like the Platoon soundtrack is the kind of soundtrack where it's like, you just accept your fate. If you're in war and like that's, and that, and you feel the way that soundtrack makes you feel, because I know so much about being in war, you know, I know so much about it. Um, just cultural warfare, that's all I know. Uh, but when that soundtrack is playing and Elias comes running out of the woods and the, the helicopter already left him behind, but they're looking down, his friends are looking down and he's holding the flares and he drops to his knees and he holds the flares out as the music is just, it's hitting its uh, crescendo, crescendo, however, you, however the fuck you say it. Uh That's one of those moments too where, you know, if you're sitting there, you're going to have a tear come to your eye. You know, you're, a tear is going to come to your eye in that scene, and not a sad tear, not a bad tear, just a tear. It's a thing of beauty, but it's also something that, you know, gives you this spike in adrenaline, this motivation, and you're just like, life. You know, in that moment, you just feel alive. You feel live. I'm live. Just, you know, I didn't feel live. I'm going live. I didn't feel live until that moment. 
But there are those things, and music will make you do it, too. It's a reason why people listen to music when they work out. Uh, and it shows you the impact that music does have. You know, I know I've been talking about this more and more recently, where I'm just, you know, acutely aware of the impact that the impact that media has, the impact that art has. Uh, what you take in truly does impact how you feel beyond the moment that you're feeling it in. If that makes sense, where. Uh, if you continually listen to depressed music, you're going to reinforce that. If you continually, you know, watch things that are, you know, sad or bad, you know, that's going to reinforce that in your brain. And it doesn't mean you have to deny that those things exist. It doesn't mean you have to, it, it doesn't mean you, you have to avoid those things altogether, but I think it's good to be aware of it. And so you should watch The Expendables and a Bronx Tale and Platoon instead, you know, why not? And I wonder, you know, I don't watch enough new, new movies uh, to really know whether they have scenes like that or not. I don't know whether that's, uh, in the same way that that kind of juxtaposition became a cliche, like I was talking about in the Bronx Tale, a Bronx Tale, excuse me, I will get that title right, a Bronx Tale, not, not the only Bronx Tale, a Bronx Tale. Because the movie even says, I think that there's a line in the movie like, this is just another Bronx tale. Ooh-wah, ooh-wah. You know, the movie has a doo-wop theme, so naturally I like it. Um, a street corner doo-wop theme. Uh, and, uh, but, you know, in the same way that it juxtaposes, you know, the doo-wop song, the love ballad with the brutal beating going on in the bar. That was a technique that people started to use. I don't know. I don't know if Tarantino would do things like that. I feel like it just became kind of a cliche in the '90s and early 2000s to do that. Like people won't expect this. People won't expect me to play this song while something crazy and violent is going on. That might even have been something that started with like Clockwork Orange. I'm, I, I can't really remember. Uh, I know I've had that feeling in a lot of movies, but it reached a point where so many movies were doing things like that, like doing that blatant juxtaposition that it lost its meaning. And it's sort of why, you know, we're always in this, you know, people talk about the pendulum swinging back and forth. And I do feel like we swing back between this like, you know, extreme irony and then that swings back to sincerity and it, it's not even that it swings back. It's almost like something becomes so ironic that it becomes sincere again. And there's people who talk about this and, and have, have tried to like put these terms on it, like the new sincerity or post-irony. And I can't even read about that shit, and I can barely acknowledge it. The only reason I acknowledge it is just so that I don't fall into any traps, I guess, and uh, just so I know what people are talking about. I just want to know what people are talking about. Um, but, you know, th things do, they swing back and forth, but they swing so far that they actually come out on the other side. It's almost like I was talking about in the New England Patriots episode about how when you're a Cleveland Browns fan or a fan of a just perpetually shitty team, how you, you end up so far deep down in the bottom of the abyss that you actually come out in the sky, you come out of the sky, like you fall so far down into the abyss that you actually come out of the sky and you're at the top of everything and, and uh, that that process, <laughs> that soul defining process, uh, but uh, uh, it's it's that same sort of idea uh, where like 
there's this irony to when movies were like, let's juxtapose this. Let's let's put these two unlikely things together because it'll make people feel weird but kind of interested and it's cool. Uh, and it'll pull at their emotions in a weird way. You know, in the same way that movies would try to do that, it's almost like uh, that ended up, it was almost ironic maybe. like the. I mean, when you get away from all like the, the last 20 years awful versions of irony like I feel like in the last 20 years the way that we define irony has gotten like more distorted and worse uh and I feel like that's true irony it's like oh you know you know here's this thing that's going on and then here's this song that is the complete opposite of that that's that's kind of true irony it's simple but it's effective but when you do it too much it loses its impact because it's like anything oversaturation overuse Doing too many podcasts in, in, in two days, three days, four days. Turns out it ruins its impact. Uh, and self-awareness is really cool. Self-awareness is really in. Make sure you deprecate yourself. Make sure you... Have you deprecated yourself today? Um, no, self-deprecation is always fun. As long as you don't go too overboard. As long as it's true. Because, uh, you know, I, I try to be self-deprecating, but it's coming from, I, I genuinely feel the way I express. Like, when I criticize myself, that's real. I'm not doing it just to, for any particular reason. I'm just, that's real if I'm if I'm deprecating myself. Uh, deprecating. Self-deprecating. I just love that self-deprecating humor. Um, but, yeah, it's that sort of thing where... You know, overuse, oversaturation makes something lose its impact. It becomes expected. And if it's something that's designed to surprise you, like juxtaposing two dissimilar feelings or ideas, uh, that's going to lose its impact real quick the more you do it. Um, and uh, But yeah, there is that pendulum swing where, or or even just where the pendulum breaks breaks through the other side and, and it ends up on the complete opposite side and you're like, how did it get over there? It's probably like kind of how it felt when people found out the, the earth was round. It was like, I thought this was just a back and forth, you know, I thought we just went back and forth on this planet. And now I'm in, in, in this, this other country. It's the Christopher Columbus effect. Uh, Chris, Christopher, Christophero Colombo. Um, it's the Christopher Columbus effect when you... Break and as the doors said, when you break on through to the other side, there we go. That's what it is. It's breaking on through to the other side. It's when the pendulum breaks on through to the other side, and you thought that you had just like gone so deep into some weird ironic viewpoint that you find out that you actually believe it. And that's the scary thing about joking around. That's the scary thing about comedy is that the more you repeat something, the more it becomes real. And it's what I've said over and over again about mantras. And if you repeat that you're a piece of shit over and over again, you become a piece of shit, or you stay a piece of shit, or you become a worse piece of shit. And it's sort of the same thing, where if you joke around about something enough, you might find that you've actually started to believe that or become it. And I know that more than anybody. But I also feel like I've actually... Things that I think I might have joked around about initially because I may not have been comfortable with the fact that I actually did somewhere deep inside of me think that way. Uh, so in that way, it's not even that, like repeating like a joke or like 
playing playing a character or doing a certain form of humor it's not even that it like transforms you itself it's that that itself was a way for some like core feeling of communicating itself that you weren't comfortable about it's like when jocks pretend to be gay because in my opinion like one of the lowest forms of humor is guys who like pretend to be gay in front of girls and stuff like there's that thing that guy it's not just jocks it's all kinds of people where they'll do this thing where like they kind of make a joke that like you know it's like oh uh well if you want to go suck if you want me to suck your dick in the closet you know they'll do things like that like in public and and you're like wait i don't get the joke and i think that's you know that's a classic form of uh you know closeted you know behavior where a guy will like joke about that stuff because they're almost like testing it out. They're almost seeing how someone reacts. But it's they're also expressing something that they do, but they do feel and by joking around about it. And I'm not one of these people who's going to say everybody who jokes about being gay is secretly gay. Because to me, that's as dumb as saying like every homophobe is a closet case. Every homophobe, every single one. Uh you know, and, that, and that's an interesting juxtaposition, like the whole like, oh, someone who expresses all this hate is secretly that thing that they hate. Um, but to me, it's the same sort of thing where it's like, yeah, there's some truth to that. So I'm not going to say that every time someone jokes about that, they're gay. But I have experienced that with uh, I had a, a, there was a guy I worked with years ago who good, you know, he, he had like a fiance and stuff and we got along really well. And we would go out for happy hour and we would drink. Uh, and he would kind of do that thing where he kind of hints or, or he jokes around like, and it was really out of place too. It wasn't like the sort of like sense of humor we shared because he was a really funny guy, a really good guy. And he would do that thing though, where he would suddenly just say like some just weird, like out of character, like gay joke about like implying that he and I were gay and every time, you know, I did nothing to encourage it, and I, and it was just kind of like, to me, it was just a low form of humor, and in what was otherwise, like, you know, a lot of funny conversations, it was just out of place. And then I heard from other people that he had, he had tried to, like, corner uh, another coworker and, like, late night at a party, and there was just some stuff that started to come out of the woodwork, and I'm not trying to shame the guy or anything like that, but it was just like, oh... I get what he's doing. Like, I get whether he even knows it or not. I don't know. Uh, but it was just one of those weird things where, you know, people will joke about things that they actually do somewhere inside of them want to express. But I don't think that's always what people are doing because I think that's also a way that people will shut down entire forms of humor and, and try to censor people because they'll say, like, well, if you say something that is potentially bigoted, that means you're really a bigot and you should be censored and deplatformed and, uh, throwing away, we're throwing away, you know, your credibility, you know, because I don't think that's true either. And we need to be able to joke about anything. And I think people who who do try to get by in life by making light of things will end up like making jokes, you know, that come from all kinds of places, you know, whether they're, they come from just observation or within, it doesn't really matter. I think that, you know, just being a person who, fights the battles of life with humor, you know, you're going to end up saying things that, that aren't an expression of what you mean. But I think you should be careful about that. You should, you know, you should, uh, you should like wonder if like, oh, is, is the fact that I'm doing this over and over again, actually making this more of a reality? 
And that's something I've experienced professionally as well, where you got to be careful what you joke about in a company or with like creative collaborators for that matter. Because you could make a joke, and, and this is almost played out a couple times, one in a very professional setting and one in a creative setting. Uh, it was just like, you know, a project I was working on with somebody where I made a joke, and then next thing I knew, that joke was not only taken seriously, but like being put into practice. And I was like, this is a bad idea, and this isn't what I meant. And it's like, oh, no. You know, it, it's a horrible feeling to see a joke turn into an unnecessary reality. <laughs> and, you know, it's not exactly a grenade launcher. Jokes are more dangerous than grenade launchers. Uh, but no, it is a thing, though, where it's like if you repeat something enough, it does kind of start to creep into your reality at the very least. But that shouldn't be used to discourage people from a particular form of humor. That shouldn't be used to... Uh, that shouldn't be used to censor anybody, you know, just because you think that a joke could potentially have, you know, some greater impact than just comedy doesn't mean that it needs to be shut down. But it does tell you about a person. It does tell you a lot about a person, like what they're willing to, you know, uh, joke about and laugh about. And I'm someone who, I have a total, you know, absolute open policy, anything, everything about me, about the darkest, you know, corners of my life, you know, throw it at me. I don't care if it's at my expense. I don't care if it's at anybody's expense. Because, um, uh, I don't know, that's a funny idea. Like expense, at somebody's expense. Somebody else is paying for your joke. Somebody else is paying with their soul. You're draining their soul. You're, dra you're dehumanizing them. You're dehumanizing them at their expense. Uh, I don't know. It's, it's something, you know, I don't mind conversations around it. I think people should have discussions around stuff like that. But nobody should ever tell anybody what to do or what to say or what's truly inappropriate. I mean, I was at a get-together a couple years ago where a, a guy I know, you know, made a joke about his dad's death, and people weren't sure whether to laugh, but it's like, he's volunteering that joke. Uh, and that's how people cope. I mean, you look at it, too, as a coping mechanism, but I don't know. This wasn't even originally about humor. It was just about adrenaline spikes and power-ups, what I would call a power-up. And for me, it's, it's very melody-based. I'm not a rhythm guy. You know, I don't, it's like I like a good beat or whatever, or an interesting beat, but only as much as it highlights the melody. And I don't listen to much music that's primarily rhythm-based. I like rhythms that highlight a melody, that accent a melody in a certain way. And all of my music taste at this point, you know, as much as like I have a background in, in just liking the pure texture of things and the pure... Uh, totality of the sonics or even just on a minimal level just some like minor little tone to something as much as I do get into those nuances when it comes to my real active listening experience and I would say I'm less interested in music now than I've ever been in my life and I feel better about that than I ever could have imagined let me just say that I don't know why that is it's how I feel right now and I'm cool with it uh and and uh 
you know, music, I don't need to hold on to like music or whatever. I don't need to do that. I'll always listen to music. I'll always love music. I'll always want to hear new music. It's not like, that's a part of me that's not dying. That's never going to go anywhere completely. But all of my taste in music is very melody dependent. And not just a good melody. Like, I can recognize a good riff or a good melody, but it, it, the melody has to surprise me in some way without being too abstract or, or trying too hard to, like, stray from traditional melody. I wouldn't even be able, be able to define it, but if you're familiar with the Every Night's a School Night show that I do on occasion when I'm not doing these shows... Uh, the melodies on that show are, are very carefully chosen. I mean, I choose those songs very much based on the melody that is being conveyed. And there's a reason why I don't play R&B or like soul music or a lot of like classic rock and roll or uh, even a lot of the rockabilly, even like a lot of the more driving rockabilly. I don't play a lot of that because to me, the melody isn't, it's lacking. Or even if there's a strong melody to it, it's not the melody that makes me feel that power up. And it doesn't have to be an adrenaline spike grenade launcher power-up. It doesn't have to be Terry Crews grenade launcher. You know, it doesn't have to get me hyped up. You know, some genres of music just inherently do that. Uh, I listen to some music solely for that purpose or, or some variation of that purpose. The, the power-up purpose. This music has that power-up purpose. But it does something to me. I feel something. I feel a glow. That's really what it is. It's this glow, whatever that is. It doesn't even have to be a happy song. It could be a sad ballad. It could be a doo-wop ballad. But the melody gives me some glow that is more than the sum of its parts. It's more than the idea being conveyed in the lyrics. Even if it's a sad song, it does not make me feel sad. Because I don't listen to music because of the emotion attached. Like... uh you know, a girl who's about to break up with her boyfriend will listen to Beyonce Survivor to get hyped up because she'll relate to it. That's her power-up song. You know, I don't really listen to music for that. I don't listen to music to relate to it so much. I listen to it for whatever inexplicable glow it gives my body and brain. And so in... in Choosing like doo-wop and stuff like that, it's, it's more that feeling than it is, oh, listen to this sad sap sing. It's so relatable. It's so relatable. Uh, I'm just sapping it up. No, it's, it just, it's some inexplicable glow that it gives me, and that's a form of that power-up, even if it isn't the same as like, you know, when I watch Bronx Tale at 1 a.m. and stay up till 4 because I'm so excited and I want to beat up bikers and lock doors and say, now you can't leave. Now you can't leave. Um, it's not that feeling exactly, but it's not far off. You know, it's not exactly far off. Uh, but having those power-ups is important. And sometimes, you know, when I wonder... Sometimes I wonder, like, what people are listening to and why that... And how that impacts their mood. Like, when I know people who are just you know, just constantly down and not even necessarily clinically depressed, but they're just always kind of glum and, and that kind of thing. I, I do wonder like how their personal soundtrack and how what they consume impacts that. And obviously I've learned more and more in recent years how diet and getting a full night's sleep, just all those things that everybody tells you that you just like don't, it's in one ear out the other, you take it for granted, how all, how truly uh, meaningful all that shit is, like truly like eating well, exercising, 
all of that, you know, and and when someone makes some big crazy life decision without first trying to do those classic things, those classic biological, psychological moves to improve yourself, I just it doesn't seem good to me. It doesn't seem like they're going to get where they want to go. And who am I to say that? I don't know where they want to go. But I do wonder, like when someone comes out and they make some grand declaration about some new identity they've adopted, I just wonder, I'm like, you know, you know, you got a lot going on. Like I know you and I know you have a lot going on. And I'm just wondering if you've, if you've at least tried or considered the classics. And, you know, it's like I was talking about like, you know, People go to these great lengths to avoid the home row on their keyboard. They'll come up with all this kind of crazy shorthand and like weird ways of typing because they think that they're like somehow it's somehow easier when it's like really you're putting way more effort into that than just like going with the classic way of typing. You know what I mean? I feel the same way with people where I'm like, oh, you're like going to this, you're, you're going to great lengths to like you know, reveal this new identity you've adopted. And it could, and I'm not even going to give specific examples because I don't want to. I feel like I'd be attacking people I know who don't deserve it because they're just trying to figure this crazy shit out. Uh, but I see that and I'm just like, have you tried the classics? You know, it's like, it's like someone who starts reading like some new fiction and it's like, you know, I don't think you have to have read the classics, but it's like if you're complaining about you know, I'm trying to read all these new books that keep coming out and they suck. And it's like, well, have you read the classics? Are you saying that because you've read the classics? Like, you know, there's a reason why the classics are good. You know, uh, I read Treasure Island last year and I think I had read it when I was young, but rereading it as an adult, I was just like, this is so, it's short, it's easy to read. It's just so well done. It's just sometimes you just go with the classics and you're like, oh yeah, this. Sometimes classics suck. I don't know. Sometimes they don't resonate with you, but uh, when it comes to your own well-being, your own biology, your own psychology, it's like, have you tried the classics? Eating well, exercising, sleeping, not surrounding yourself with satanic imagery. Because <laughs> let's get into that. Let's get into satanic imagery. Because as someone who has been a lifelong metalhead, still likes some satanic music, still is into that, I never really identified with Satanism, though. You know, I listened to some bands who had that stuff. I was always more drawn to the more uh, esoteric and pagan sides of that music than I ever was, like, satanic. But I know what it what it feels like to listen to, like, some song about Satan and get hyped up on it. Uh, but more and more I've started to realize, like, oh, yeah, that stuff always looks good. There's a... There's some ancient appeal of satanic imagery, and the art always looks cool. When you look at the occult, when you look at um, especially older satanic imagery, woodcuts, that kind of thing, it's always attractive. There's always an, an aesthetic appeal. But that's sort of the trap that gets laid for you with, you know, I'll get away from Satanism, you know, both literally and otherwise. But just anytime that, like, some sort of dark imagery appeals to you, you think and you think it's cool, you know, that's the way, that's sort of the trap, is that that stuff is always going to be more attractive. It's just like how, you know, getting drunk feels good, or, you know, this is getting really preachy. Getting really preachy. Let's hear more about Terry Crews' grenade launcher. We'll get back to that. We're getting back to that. We're going to come, you know, I didn't introduce Terry Crews' grenade launcher into this story just to not bring it up again. 
Uh, that's the the definition of it. That's the definition of Terry Crews' grenade launcher. Uh, is that it's going to come back around? It's the it's the old callback. That's what they call it in comedy when you introduce an idea early on. I mean, make a little maybe a smaller joke about something, and then at the very end, you surprise everybody with a callback to that original idea. And I don't know that I'm going to do that with the grenade launcher. Don't expect it. Uh, this is I'm winging it. I'm winging it. And that's always the best kind of callback, though, when it's unplanned. Because if it's like rehearsed and planned, it's not as it doesn't have the same impact. Uh, but uh, you know the sort of imagery that you have in your life, and there's a reason why satanic imagery is attractive to people who feel at odds with their community, with society, because it looks fucking cool, and a lot of things that are otherwise dark have that appeal. There's a reason why women are drawn to bad boys, that cliche. It's a true cliche, though. If you've actually seen that play out, you know, outside of TV and movies, it's really interesting. It's really interesting to, like, have a female friend who you see gravitate toward, like, bad boys and that sort of thing. I won't get into that, but it's an interesting thing to see in the flesh. And not in that, like, women just like the assholes. I don't even mean that. I'm not even talking about that, that whole thing that people, like, that love to harp on, whatever. I'm just talking about like somebody who's just kind of troubled or, or, or causes trouble. Um, but there's a reason why women are drawn to the bad boys. There's a reason why like rebellious teenagers are drawn to satanic imagery. There's all sorts of, you know, different versions of that, of being attracted to things that are subversive. And it's easy to get caught up in that. It's easy to like derive your entire meaning from that. And it's also easy to not realize what it's doing to you because i think when when you're initially drawn to that it's almost a form of the breaking breaking your boundaries breaking the rules which is necessary but if you stay with that and you don't it, that stuff should in the end it should almost bring you closer to good things it should almost bring you closer to things that are actually empowering or meaningful um you know, I think it's a worthless exercise if you dive deep into pointless nihilism and never resurface with some sort of new meaning in your life. Uh, if, if you become nihilistic and you just think nothing matters, you should see that as an opportunity to grab hold of anything and everything that could potentially help you and give you meaning. Because that's really what it means. When you end up in a nihilistic state, it's like, think of it like a blank slate. Think of it from a constructive point of view. You know, you've gone back to zero, but you can build from there. And you may not have a choice in what impacts you positively or what gives you meaning. Uh, you may just have to grab what's there at that point. And especially if there's any kind of like deep-seated negativity, like a depression or anything like that, coupled with nihilism... Which is, you know, someone might think that's always the case. Someone might think that, oh, you know, nihilism and depression, they always go hand in hand. But I don't think so. Because I know for me, when I was more nihilistic, I was initially attracted to it simply because it was interesting. I was drawn to nihilistic art and music simply because it interested me. And th there was a part of me that was negative and I wanted to avoid the things in culture and life that, you know, I just... I didn't, I wasn't attracted to. And so part of that was like, well, here's this other thing that I don't quite understand, but I'm attracted to it. And there's some people who are, you know, expressing interesting things with it. 
So like my my original interest in nihilism wasn't coming from a place where I was actually like empty, sad or like self-destructive or anything like that where I was like nothing matters. You know, I wasn't feeling that way. Uh, but I think it's it's a, an example of like just like joking around about something or immersing yourself in something. I think eventually it does creep in and eventually you find that you actually believe that things don't have meaning. And that itself becomes a meaning. You know, that's the it's the hypocrisy, I guess you could say, or the contradictory nature of nihilism or atheism or anything that's built around the absence of an idea is that you end up forming an idea or a sense of meaning or identity around this thing that's supposed to be the absence of that. And that's not, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I, I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with, uh, I mean, I, I think it is one of those things where, you are defined by what you don't do as much as you are by what you do. But I don't know that you need to hang your hat on it, at least not for very long. And for me, it's like getting into nihilism, so to speak. I'm not going to say that like I got... It's not like everything I was interested in was explicitly nihilism. It's not like that. But in general, there was a... Everything that I was interested in was pretty much esoteric didn't really seem to come from any kind of moral foundation, or if it did, it was more predicated on attacking that moral foundation or trying to disprove it or rebel in some way. Uh, but in being there and like and, and in kind of resting in that area for long enough, I realized, you know, where meaning existed. I was able to find the meaning from there. And I wouldn't be able to define that. And that's, I think, the truly amazing and empowering thing to me about finding meaning from a nihilistic place is that meaning itself is just as mysterious. Meaning and purpose, like you hear that and you're like, oh, I have to write an explicit goal, a five-year plan. I have to define my life in these strict terms, these commandments, these rules. And like it turns out, no, like meaning and purpose is just as mysterious, if not more, I think more, uh, than just out-and-out out nihilism or lack of purpose. I think that you it's just as esoteric, it's just as strange, but you have to learn how to frame it in the right way. And to have something that you don't quite understand and that still has all the allure of mystery, all of that esoteric draw, all of that aesthetic power, uh, and, and part of that's, you know, you have to learn, you, you start to appreciate aesthetics that you might not have before too so the, so there's new things that come out of that new interests new taste you're open to ideas that you didn't expect to be interested in uh, but it's still just as esoteric just as strange maybe more so because you do have this feeling of purpose you do have this feeling you do have this drive you do have something to kind of like some kind of I don't know I don't want to say a handrail uh, but something's there I think that's it there's something there you feel something there, whatever that is, and, and as if it's one thing. It's not necessarily one thing. It's all-encompassing. It's more of a feeling. It's more of that. But to have that, but to not be able to define it, to have that sense of purpose, but to have it be just as mysterious as the wide-open world of nihilism, the open-world video game of nihilism, uh, that is interesting, and that is keeping me interested. That's what keeps me interested in life, is that phenomena, and that's not something I ever could have imagined. 
And it's not something that you can even explain or translate to anybody who hasn't experienced it for themselves. But it's real. It's very real. And uh, you start to understand what sort of power-ups work for you. Because I think power-ups are so essential. And when I see people, like I was saying, when I see people who, who just seem really down, and I know not everybody's the same. I know people have hard lives. Some people have easier lives than I do. Some people have harder lives. And, you know, anybody can listen to you and be like, oh, well, you got it better than somebody else. Go tell that to the kids in Ethiopia eating popsicle sticks. You know what I mean? Like, someone can always say that to you. And you should always be aware of that. You should always be aware of those experiences. Um, you should always know that that exists. Uh, but that doesn't mean you should just cripple yourself. That doesn't mean you should, like, cripple yourself. Oh, just because someone has a harder time, someone has an easier time, it means that uh, I should just cripple myself mentally and, you know, and do nothing and feel guilty all the time. If you're feeling guilty without a purpose, whoo, that's, that sucks. That really sucks. Uh, but if you feel guilty with a purpose, that just kind of plays into everything I mean. You can, you know, use that. Use that guilt. If you're feeling guilty and you're not, ex you know, ex uh, if you're feeling guilty without a purpose and you're not using it for something, it's a complete waste. If you feel overprivileged and you're guilty and you're not enjoying life or trying to enjoy life, you are a fool and you're actually disrespecting the people who are underprivileged and don't have that opportunity. And nobody's going to want to listen to you if you're miserable all the time or angry all the time. That's an important lesson that needs to be learned these days is that nobody's going to want to listen to you if you're communicating that kind of energy or feeling. And it doesn't mean you can't communicate that. It doesn't mean you can't communicate the negative things or the things you feel guilty for. But if you're coming from a place where, where people see you and you're like, oh, that person is uh, constrained and conflicted and maybe even like mentally crippled over their own bullshit, they're not going to look at you as an example to live by or learn from. Not that you should be an example to live by. Uh, I mean, I would never endorse myself. I would never, ever endorse... Uh, you know, there was that Harmony Kareen on David Letterman years ago, his infamous his infamous David Letterman appearances where David Letterman revealed what an idiot and asshole he is. Uh, where, you know, granted, Harmony Kareen's a weirdo and there's a generation gap between him and Letterman and even a lot of people Harmony Kareen's age didn't understand what he was doing, if he even knew. Uh, but where he came out with that book, and it was kind of an artsy book, like there's a page that just says Hepburn on it. Uh, and uh, David Letterman, of course, like he was intrigued and stuff, but he was being kind of a dick. He was being kind of a bully. You know, in the last episode, I talked about bullying, and I, I definitely picked up on a real bully vibe from Letterman when he was talking to Harmony. Uh, but the whole reason I bring it up is that uh, David Letterman's asking Harmony about his book, and Harmony's like, well... I wouldn't endorse it. <laughs> and it's his own book, you know. He says, I wouldn't endorse it. I'd, I'd probably tell people to read something older. Reminds me of talking about the classics, you know. Uh, but yeah, you can't really endorse yourself, you know. And everything in my life that has led me here, good or bad, I, it's cliche, but I'm grateful for it. 
everything that has put me on the path to right now is something I'm grateful for and something that I, I try to keep it all alive, good or bad. Uh, at least the aspects of it that I can use that continue to motivate me or inform me. You know, the good, bad, and the ugly. I, I really, you know, it, it brought me where I am now. But I would not endorse it. I would never say, take my path. Choose the same path I took. Here's, here's, here's three easy steps. Remove all satanic imagery from your life. No, but keep that around. Like, I mean, I keep... I still listen to some satanic things, and it has nothing to do with any, like, pseudo-religious new Christian identity. I talk a lot about God. I, I make more Christian references these days, but that's not in an attempt to, like, express some new identity as a Christian. I'm not part of this new Christian movement, which I actually like. There's, there's a few of these spiritual movements in my generation that have come about, and there's the new Christian movement— uh, this kind of alternative take on traditional Christianity that's much more general and much more informed, and I do like that that's going on because I see the positive impact it's having on the people who have embraced it. Uh, but it's similar to, like, the witchy girls, you know, the witchy girls who are like, everything's witchy, everything's this, astrology, crystals, all that, and I don't criticize that either because you see that people are seeking spirituality. They're seeking immaterial purpose and motivation, and they're trying to augment their lives with it. Whether they're doing a good job or not, I can't comment. It's not my business. I notice trends, and trends sometimes annoy me, so it's like when every single girl, not every girl, I mean, I I generalize so much, uh, but there's a whole type of girl. They're in this town. They're in every city where it's like everything's witchy, everything's witch, and you see them marketing that and all that, which I, you know, I don't have a problem with. Again, I don't have a problem with it. Whatever works for you. Um, But that's, that's just one variation of this. So it's like when I talk about when I use Christian language, it's not even an attempt to be like, I'm born again, and this is just how it is. but I'm not, I'm not discluding that either. And that's, why, that's what I mean when I say that like meaning and purpose are still as much a mystery to me as nihilism was and nihilistic thinking. Because uh, maybe that's a better way to put it. I try to avoid isms. I wouldn't say I ever embraced nihilism, but I definitely was prone to and drawn to nihilistic thinking. Uh, but when I, yeah, when I bring up like this new Christianity and stuff, I use God just cause it's an easy term to use that encompasses a lot. And to me, doesn't have a strict definition. Uh, and it's a placeholder word, no offense, God, but, uh, you know, it could be a guy in the sky. I'm not discluding that either. It's, I do come from a more agnostic place, but agnostic with experiences, uh, agnostic with experiences that have greatly informed me in some ways and brought new ideas into my life. But that doesn't mean I know what they are. That doesn't mean I know exactly what's being communicated to me. Uh, Agnostic with experience is the best way to put that. Um, uh, But uh, (laughs) Terry Crews' grenade launcher. Um. I don't know, well, that, that, let's go back to that, because sometimes it is just planting a seed. Sometimes it is introducing a grenade launcher into your life, and you don't know why, and then you find out much later that it's going to be of some use, and you didn't plan on it. You didn't think it through, but you're sure glad that you noticed it. You're sure glad that you noticed that grenade launcher, 
because now you know it's available to you. And even if you forget it's there, when the bad guys are trying to take out your elite team of commandos, you remember that grenade launcher. And uh, that grenade launcher may very well be what you need to take out the bad guys. Or if you're a spectator, it may be the very thing that gets you excited and gives you meaning and purpose and connects you with your sons and all of the men in the room who are watching The Expendables. You know, that, that's, that, that's the impact it could have. And so I recommend that people notice things. Notice things. Like, walk down the street and look around. You know, and I'm, not, I'm not even talking about this phone shaming thing. Everybody's walking around in their phones. Because at least that's something to look at. Like, when I see people walking down the street looking at their phones, I'm like, well, they, you know, I'd be looking around. I'd be looking at my surroundings, whether they're beautiful, ugly, whether I'm looking down some shit-stained alleyway. I like to look around and see things, whether it's urban decay, whether it's garbage, whether it's a beautiful landscape, a big, wide-open Puget Sound, a mountain. I like to observe the world around me, but I'm also not afraid to look at my devices when I feel like it. Uh, And so when I see somebody walking down the street with their head in their device, with their head in a vice... When I see someone walking down the street with their head in a vice, I wonder, how the fuck are they walking around? No, uh, when I see them looking at their D-vice, their D-vice, I don't get mad at them, but the thing that really gets me is the people I see who are walking down the street not looking in their device, but not looking around. They're just looking down. They look downcast, literally. They're, they're literally the, the definition of the word downcast. They are casting their vision down on the ground, and they might be sad. They might be depressed. Uh, but last time I checked, you know, depression doesn't prevent you from swiveling your head around. Depression doesn't stop you from looking around. And if you're depressed, if you're nihilistic, whether you feel bad or if you're just bored— Because a lot of stuff is just boredom. And I would say that's what attracted me to nihilism. It was being bored with everything else. Nihilistic thinking was attractive to me because I thought everything was boring. I was bored. Uh, And boredom is a, a symptom of depression. And I think to some degree, depression is a symptom of boredom. But when I see people walking down the street looking bored, I, I just want to tell them to look up and look around. And maybe they're just really in on, they're, maybe they're zeroing in on a really good thought. I don't know what's going on in their head. Who am I to know? Uh, but I know what they look like. I know what I see. And I, I think if you find yourself doing that, if you find yourself walking around, looking at the ground, walking around, not paying attention, just start looking around. It might not feel natural at first. It might not be what you want to do. But just start looking around. And you might see Terry Crews' grenade launcher sitting there. You might notice Terry Crews' grenade launcher. And you never know when you might need it later. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children